This is Coast to Coast. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Corey Johnson. We're here every day bringing the latest news in the world of business and finance. And the most interesting stories in global technology from Silicon Valley and beyond, powered by our more than 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. You can download Coast to Coast on iTunes, SoundCloud, and Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show weekdays at 2 o'clock Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio. Uh, that might become General Electric's theme song. The new boss of GE said, yeah, he's weighing potentially dramatic changes, including a breakup into separate businesses. GE shares, by the way, they are lower in today's session. Watching the latest chapter in the history of this more than 120-year-old company are Joel Levington. He's senior credit analyst at Bloomberg Intelligence in our Bloomberg 1130 studio in New York City. Good to have you back. Thank you. Doing. Talking GE again. Mm-hmm. When you look at the credit picture, let's just start there because that's what you do. When you look at the health, the credit health of this company, what does it look like? Yeah, it's struggling. It's struggling a lot more than the rating agencies are suggesting, uh, maybe even more so than uh, what the bonds are suggesting. Um, to me, uh, if you look at what its metrics look like and where it's going, it might be an overlevered triple B. Uh, it's rated single A, which would be three notches. Isn't uh, it like crazy difference. to get your head around this? General Electric for so long, right? Mm hmm was top rated. Yes. Yeah, I mean, they had, for decades, they were a AAA rated company uh, until the uh, recession and, and uh, the Great Recession where they started to get lowered. Here, what's so interesting is that it's really not a financial policy play. It's really the business risk has elevated so much that it's deteriorated the, biz- uh, the, the, mm-hmm. the credit metrics as opposed to, uh, you know, like some sort of financial engineering that, uh, that would have happened at most companies. Well, it, it, you know, we had a money manager on last week who's John his Thompson, goal. right? John Thompson, one of our favorites, mm-hmm. a good uh, long short hedge fund manager uh, who has put up some really solid numbers. Um, he says his big goal at GE and his letter to management facts is please stop. Don't do anything. You guys are the worst <laughs> in terms of timing of selling stuff uh, and cites a long history of GE getting out of financial services just before financial services gets a bid, getting into oil and gas when no one wants to be into oil and gas equipment with Baker Hughes. And and, and one decision about uh, restructuring after a next, it seems like a, a banker's come up with all these creative ideas to separate GE from its uh, opportunities. Yeah, I totally agree with you, Corey, and, and with John's sentiment. It, 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 breaking it up into little issues as opposed to uh, under one umbrella, it does not really change the issues. Uh, the, the fact is, is that their power business has lagged dramatically, and that's a function of a bad acquisition with Alstom. Uh, the fact is, is that in terms of capital structure, they have $41 billion of debt with a 5% coupon or higher. Uh, they could, if they reduce that by 1%, you're talking about $400 million in pre-tax savings. I mean, right. I, I'm no treasurer, but there are very little simple things that could be done here to restructure. And that goes straight into free cash flow. That's exactly right. I mean, which it's, is like, it's like there's no associated cost with that profits sitting there. I mean, it's, it's like they've uh, what's the old line? They've 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 snatched defeat from the jaws of victory. <laughs> <laughs> Somebody definitely needs to light a, a fire under them. All right, so um, you know, it's just kind of staggering to see this company. I mean, what what do you hear from folks? Are they're just saying. As we heard from John Thompson, just let it be, let it lo- let it just sit for a little while. Well, I think the equity side is looking for a catalyst, and uh, to, to some of them, financial engineering by breaking it up into pieces may help. 
uh, Siemens has been doing the same thing. Uh, they uh, just had a large investor day for their healthcare business, which they're putting out a, a, a small IPO on. But to me, that doesn't really solve the core problems. Your core problems are you need to fix some businesses, you need right. to sell some businesses, which I think will be a struggle for them uh, because they put themselves behind the eight ball and they have to, you know, like clean up their pension, which is $31 billion underfunded. It's the worst in the S&P 500. Wow. That's amazing. Yeah, it's tremendous. And uh, I mean, you know, what do they do with that? I mean, that's kind of an overhang. Without a doubt. And when you're talking about financial risk, that is a big financial risk that the rating agencies count as debt-like in nature. Doesn't go away. It doesn't go away. Now, they are planning to, to pre-fund $6 billion with a new bond issuance uh, sometime this year to go and take a stab at that. But remember, you're just placing, replacing one liability with another liability. It, it doesn't go you, away. You still have the issue of, of paying that down. What's the uh, the financial markets? You know, at at, at uh, the current credit rating, do they look at? Do they like the opportunities here? Well, and can I they raise a lot of cash? I think they can raise a lot of cash, and I think they should take advantage of the fact that they can raise a lot of cash. You know, if you look at the uh, Bloomberg function uh, NIA for new issue analytics, uh, it suggests that they could issue thirty-year paper under four percent, and that's why I go back and say, hey, you got forty-one billion dollars of bonds that have a five percent coupon or larger. Why not take the opportunity now, and also take the opportunity to get rid of some of the short-term debt that you have and turn it out into longer debt? Why haven't they done that? That, like, as you said before, that's kind of CFO 101. Yeah, Carol, you can see me. Corey can't. <laughs> but if Corey could, he would see my I don't know face because, you know, I don't really understand why they have been so slack. On radio, here's how you do it. You do it like this. <laughs> I don't know. Or it's Scooby. <laughs> no, it's like it, right? That's exactly right. There are basic things that could be done, uh, basic block and tackling that really need to be attacked. And it just doesn't Why feel wouldn't like a company do that when that's so basic? Is there something that they're worried about if they go to do an issuance and there isn't demand for it? Or what? It, what is it? No, I think there's there would be demand for single A paper. And I think that's exactly why you take advantage of it right now yeah. before you potentially or hypothetically lose that a single rating, a, the, the a, a one rating. Can I ask you, is there any way that if you break this down, Joel, into the different businesses mm -hmm. that GE is in, you got healthcare, you got power generation, you've got jet engines. Um, are the credit ratings of any of those businesses better than the others? Uh, well, if you made them standalone, you could because uh, you know GE, for all of its warts, has some diamonds in uh, their healthcare business and also in their aviation business. Yeah. So fundamentally, those businesses are stronger than other businesses inside of GE, and if you levered it low enough. Uh, that would be a way of structuring higher credit ratings there. If you were to do that, though, the weak link, the weak businesses would wind up with higher leverage, which is kind of a double whammy and something that you know is setting you up for trouble. Uh, you know, if you look at some of their businesses that they've spun off already, like Genworth and Synchrony, they've uh, they've they've come into trouble to begin with. So maybe that's a GE plan. Right. So although didn't John Thompson say, say to us, uh, Corey, that you know maybe those financial businesses they might have should have maybe held on to them. Well, they're certainly more valuable now than they were before. At least the rest of the financial sector is. But, you know, yeah. as I mentioned, GE is a way of changing those rules. <laughs> All right. Joel, thank you so much. Joel Levington, our senior credit anal analyst at Bloomberg Intelligence. Everything will always be. Lots of shopping going on, but where and how? Matthew Shea joins one of the CEO of the National Retail Federation. Talk a little about what's going on in the world of retail, which is, Matthew, tell us. 
Hey, Corey, Carrie, uh, Carol, nice to be with you both. Um, listen, it's it's transformational. Obviously, there's a lot of disruption and volatility across the economy and, and across different industries, whether you look at um, you know entertainment or healthcare or finance uh, and many, many others. Retail is part of that same uh, transformation. And we're here at our convention this week in New York with 37,000 guests, 3,500 retail companies, Right. Uh, 90 delegations from around the world, and it's exciting. So, the so Matt, i got to jump in because I can't even tell you how much time in the last 12 months we have spent to talking about disruption in the retail industry. It's kind of an ongoing, constant story. So we get that that's the backdrop. So what is retail doing uh, in terms of kind of being a prominent player going forward? Well, I think the retail industry has always been at the leading edge of uh, transformations in the consumer space because as customer preferences change and evolve, retailers have to meet those changed preferences and have to do it before most other industries do because they see it and feel it first. So a lot of this has to do with making changes to your structure, to your organization, making the right investments in the platforms and the initiatives that will help engage customers. But ultimately, it's about the people and about the culture you create. And you saw last year with the news, a year and a half ago, uh, for Walmart's purchase of Jet.com. And then you saw last year the purchase by Amazon of Whole Foods. And although those deals were at different scales, they represent flip sides of the same coin. And that is, if, if 50 years ago or 25 years ago, the game was being played in opposite end zones, and there was bricks and mortar on one end and e-commerce on the other, that's not the case today. Today, the case is that the game is being played at midfield or between the 40s or the 45-yard lines. That's where consumers are, and that's where retailers need to go to be successful. So what what is working or, or uh, I'm not that positive what is, what isn't working anymore <laughs> what where where what what strategies are are most common in companies that are struggling in the retail world well I, I you know I think we saw over the most recent holiday season the tremendous results and the gains that retailers made the growth for the holiday season from November 1st to December 31 was up five and a half percent and so it was great growth and it was distributed uh, fairly evenly across channels so you saw growth in uh, electronics and, and in jewelry and, and in apparel, and so in lots of different, different ways. Um, I think the things that are not working um, are one-dimensional views of the customer uh, or a sense that there are uh, different levels of engagement and that there are different channels. Consumers are channel agnostic today. They don't make a distinction between what happens in a store and their experience with a store and what happens online or what happens on their phone. So you got to give them a seamless experience across all channels, unify the brand, do it in a way that's customized and personalized, and find ways to engage them. Matt, we did a story last week um, taking a look at IKEA, you know, obviously known for being a big box, you know, retail outlet, all things home. Uh, and yet they're starting to explore maybe selling some stuff. They're, they've kind of been late to the game when it comes to e-commerce, but selling some stuff maybe through Amazon. Does every retailer kind of have to have an Amazon Amazon strategy, either work with them or better have a good one that kind of goes against them? Well, I, I think people get a little bit fixated uh, on and maybe distracted by uh, Amazon. Uh, Amazon is a fabulously successful company. They've led a lot of disruption, uh, but they've taken advantage of changes in consumer preferences. Maybe they've created some of them, but and they've raised expectations, but they've gone where the consumers wanted to go already. So I, I think the view of today's retail is, listen, there's a path forward to compete for all retailers, and we saw the results of the holiday season. We, we know what employment numbers are like. We know what Even Sears? Like. 
Well, Sears is a unique situation, I think, because of their ownership structure and their management. So, you know, some, as is the case in any environment, in any economy, and with any industry, you know, there aren't going to be 100% winners. Uh, it's competitive. Uh, it's maybe more competitive than ever. There's a great deal of consumer transparency. Uh, consumer preferences have been elevated in big ways. So not everyone will survive any more than they survive in any industry at any time. But I think there is a path forward. And so every company needs a strategy to engage with their customers. But I don't. that doesn't mean you have to try to duplicate what happens at another company. You have to understand what works for you. So look at Costco. One or two percent of Costco sales are online. Costco is on fire. They're doing great because they engage with their customers the way they want to be engaged. Neiman Marcus has 40% of its sales that occur online because that's the way its customers want to shop. So the answer is going to be different for each retailer. I think the objective is to find a way to truly bring them in, to deliver them a multidimensional experience, to do it in a seamless way, and to constantly be innovating and driving and pushing forward in ways that are going to make your customers feel valued and loyal, and they're going to get personalized, customized experiences. And that's going to be a whole range of technologies to be deployed, some now, uh, some later. But we've got an innovation lab here with 30 different technologies, whether it's uh, artificial intelligence, machine learning, robotics, uh, AR and VR. And those are real-world solutions that are being deployed right now. They're going to improve. Matthew Shea, CEO at the National Retail Federation, joining us on Bloomberg. Thank you very much, Mr. So last fall, IDC forecast that worldwide spending on robotics would exceed $230 billion in 2021 with a compound annual growth rate of nearly 23%. One ETF looking to capitalize on that, the Global X Robotics and Artificial Intelligence ETF. Jay Jacobs back with us. He's vice president, head of research at Global X Funds, $9.4 billion in assets under management. Jay, back in our Bloomberg 1130 studio right here in New York City. Welcome back. Thanks for having me. So tell me, uh, it's been a few months since uh, we last talked. Uh, I feel like the rhetoric involving robots and automation going to take over the world, displace a lot of workers. I don't want to be lied about it because we will see a lot of jobs taken over by automation. Um, when you look at what's happening in the world, how do you see automation evolving? I think what we're going to start to see is very specific tasks being taken over by robots. And specifically, if you look at some industries, you see things that are dangerous, that are harmful, that are hard to perform by humans, very low value add. And I think those are going to be the first to be disrupted. So if you look at something like folding laundry, there was a robot at CES, the Consumer Electronics Show, that was trying to solve for folding laundry. Uh, if You, you look... can get really hurt by folding laundry. <laughs> <laughs> or really helped. <laughs> um... I'm all in, though, on something like that. Uh, and you can also see it in something like food processing. This is a dangerous space. There's knives, there's heat, there's fast pace. This is an area where robotics could really come in, take away uh, take away some dangerous jobs, uh, and, and really kind of speed up the process and make it cheaper going forward. So um, what's a robotic company? Give me an example. Uh, Fanuc in Japan. Uh, has they're been the a, big one. They're the big one. They've been around since the 1970s. Mm -hmm. um, a little misconception about robotics is just how long it's been around. Um, but there's a lot of Japanese industrial automation companies. So um, uh, as a parts of the ETF, though, you're presumably picking how many companies to be in that ETF? So we have about 30 companies in the ETF. Um, it's designed to expand and contract with the industry. Obviously, with the growth of robotics in the last few years, we do see more expansion in the space. Um, but about 75% of the fund is international. So a lot of that growth is not coming in the United States. It's coming abroad. Yeah, it's fascinating, right? As you mentioned, FANUC is your top holding, correct? Mm -hmm. How do you want to play the robotics and, you know, kind of robotics play here? Is it by buying the big um, robotic manufacturers? Is it by playing some of the component 
companies that play into that? We really see it as owning the whole space. I think there's different companies for different purposes. So you have someone like Fanuc on one side who's building huge industrial automation machines for uh, car manufacturers, for cell phone manufacturers. And then you have very specific small robotics companies, uh, companies like Intuitive Surgical with the Da Vinci Surgical mm-hmm. uh, robot that's you know helping with, with surgeries and trying to um, improve recovery time. So I think you're going to have huge companies that succeed. I think you're going to have small companies that bite off very niche parts of the market. And when you look at robotics, I think you're going to see a lot of that transfer of technology across the space. So an advancement in one component can help, you know, an advancement in manufacturing could help surgery. What's a, uh, what percentage of revenues have to be from robotics in order for you to put them in your um, ETF? So we're really looking for companies with over half their revenues coming from robotics. Exceptions? Uh, not that I can think of off the top of my head, but you know, a lot of these companies, um, you know, are, are so Amazon, for example, has one of the biggest robotics companies underneath the, the arms of many things that it does. You know, all the robotics that they're putting through their uh, d- distribution centers or fulfillment centers, as they say. Um, none of those actually uh, meet that. It doesn't meet the criteria because it's a smaller percentage of revenues, even though it might be a billion dollars. Well, the challenge with Amazon is, although it relies on robotics, it's not directly profiting from it. So if you, you know, they're using uh, robotic systems to move things around their warehouse. If, if they tried to monetize it and sell it, and it became a huge part of their revenue, then it could be considered for the fund. But right now, it's really a tool. We'd rather look more upstream at the companies that are building those robots and selling them to the Amazons of the world to implement. How much do you care too about kind of the smart? robot, right? I feel like it's not just a case of engineering that makes it work, right? And that it does, you know, a repeat function over and over, uh, like we've seen along the manufacturing assembly lines, but that they think they can alter as needed in a, in a particular situation. I especially think about something like that in maybe a food industry, maybe in a medical scenario. There's lots of things. I mean, that's absolutely huge. Like I said, robotics has been around since the 1970s, mm-hmm. but for lack of a better term, those were dumb robots. They are programmed to pick something up and put it down in another place. That's pretty easy to do mechanically and even with pretty slow computers to pull off. What we're seeing now is cobots, collaborative robots, which have sensors attached to them. They have encased joints so that if you accidentally touch it, you're not going to get your finger pinched. And they're designed to work alongside humans, and they have to be much smarter to be able to do that. There is a, um, a robotics ETF already, uh, the Robo Global uh, Robotics and Automation Index ETF. It's a, a ticker Robo, and it's done really well. Um, we had the CEO on, or one of the executives there on, uh, Bill Shoemaker, uh, um, a Studebaker, I should say, about uh, about a year ago. The thing's up 52% in the last year. How does your ETF differ from the robo-ETF? And your ETF was up 58% last year. We, so we look for a bit more targeted play on, robotic, on robotics and artificial intelligence. So we're looking for those pure play companies involved in this space. That's why you know our portfolio really only has about 30 companies in it. Uh, you know other you know competitors in the space might hold more companies, less pure play. We're really trying to laser focus on which are the companies driving the space forward. It's interesting too. You said how many are like non-U.S. companies. I do also wonder what kind of message that sends to U.S. companies, right? If this is what we're going to see in the future, more and more automation hitting every kind of industry and the predominant players are non-U.S. companies. I do wonder whether or not there are any U.S. players out there that can step up. No, I think the I think uh, leaders in the U.S. technology space need to think about it. I think Washington needs to think about it. If this is really industry, uh, what are we calling it, 4.0, 5.0, um, it's really important that the U.S. is um, at the forefront of this. Where we are doing pretty well is in an artificial intelligence. So maybe if we're not building mach- the machines, the physical machines, we're building the brains, and that's an important place to be. 
as well. There's a great really- story that Bloomberg Business Week did on Fanuc. Um, I'm going to put it out on Twitter. Um, I think it was in, in last fall, uh, but just talking about them. What a giant player. I'm sorry, Corey, I cut you off. No, I was just going to thank Jay. Uh, Jay Jacobs is the head of research at GlobalX uh, with their robotics and artificial intelligence ETF. Interesting stuff. You know, yeah. and Carol, the, the, the cliche in Silicon Valley, you know, we're only in the second inning of, well, with all these startups in, in artificial intelligence chips, the sort of building blocks of what's going to run yeah. these robots, you really do get a sense we are in the very early innings of robotics here. So great stuff. True, you can't see it, but you can see the Bolt electric vehicles on the road. There's lots more uh, electronic vehicles on the road of all kinds, not least of which from the Bolt from GM. Pam Fletcher joins us right now, VP of Global Electric Vehicle Programs at GM uh, from the uh, Detroit Auto Show. And uh, Pam, talk to me about uh, sort of how big the effort is at GM. What kind of units are we talking about under the current, uh, what's for sale now, and how is it changing going forward? Yeah, hi, Corey. Um I'd love to talk about the Bolt EV. You know, we've been in market with the car now for um, just over a year. We've completed um, the launch not only through North America but into a number of um, uh, global markets. And we have um, just completed uh, another buyer survey and have found that 91% of um, those buyers that we have, those customers, um, uh, have re- that they're completely satisfied with their vehicle. So we couldn't be more um, thrilled about that because in the end it's all about satisfying um, those customers' wants and desires. Pam, are people buying the cars, leasing the cars? I bring this up because we have had some discussions here at Bloomberg about how people, you know, don't maybe outright do a purchase because they expect, just like a cell phone, that there's going to be an upgrade in a couple of years that makes, you know, a better car. And I'm just curious what kind of trends you're seeing along those lines. Yeah, so we see a mixture of both. I mean, it is possible to um, uh, purchase and to lease the vehicle. Uh, We see both. And just, just like with a conventional vehicle, you know, different solutions satisfy different customers. Um, You know, we have... uh, we're pretty proud at, at General Motors. We have the largest battery lab um, in the country, and so, you know, we've been able to do a lot of work, I say, to predict the future around, you know, the long-term um, reliability, durability, and um, things look really good, and I think we see a number of customers that, uh, you know, some lease, but we see many customers that um, purchase because we know that, well, the first thing they care about is electric range. You know, affordability is high on the list. And so, um, you know, that purchase kind of can play into that. A lot of tax breaks available. I wonder, I wonder in certain places, not a lot of them have also gone away, um, I wonder uh, what the demographics of your customer looks like for the Bolt. Well, first of all, what is, what is the sticker on the Bolt? Yes, yeah, so... Uh, you know, the Bolt is the first vehicle we say that's kind of cracked cracked the code on electric vehicles. Um, it offers high range, so 238 miles of all electric range, at under thirty thousand dollars net, the federal um, tax incentive. Um, without the federal tax incentive, it's thirty seven thousand uh, nine ninety five. That's a cheap car. And cheaper to operate uh, because it's like electric notion, I, I, I would say. Uh, so, what do you know about the demographics? Back to that, that other part. What do what the buyers look like? Are they men? Are they women? Are they married? Are they single? Are they, yeah. are they suburban? Oh, great question. The reality is, it's all all the above. Um, we do see uh, predominance of um, you know people with uh, 
advanced degrees, with um, you know, with household incomes. I'll call it higher than um, uh, the average uh, buyer. But the longer and longer we're in the market, you know, you see the demographics start to settle out um, a lot more, like what you see across our um, uh, car and small SUV um, demographic. And you guys, you know, from what I understand, are looking to get that base price of thirty-seven five before rebate um, down, and you know, looking to declines in sell costs and so on. What's the timeline for improving that cost structure? Yeah, so that's a great question. The reality is that's a constant. Um, that's something we constantly uh, work on. It's not as though it comes with the introduction of a new vehicle. Mm. You know, so for example, if I go if I go back, we've had two generations of a Chevrolet Volts in the marketplace and um you know, we didn't talk about it a lot, but we significantly decreased um the cost of that car over uh its lifetime and interestingly, while we did that, we also had improvement in um the battery energy. So people got the advantage of a little more range, frankly, at at lower cost. And so that's something we constantly, um, you know, we constantly work on. What's the state of the charging networks in the U.S.? Yeah, so you see ever-increasing amounts of um, infrastructure. Interestingly, you know, the data out there shows that cars overwhelmingly spend their time um, at home. And um, once you get past that, the next place they spend um, a large amount of time is is at work, and then it's you know on the road um, beyond there. So, you know, initially we put a lot of active we had a lot of activity working with utilities, working with um, you know cities and municipalities around making home charging uh, possible. So, home charging for you may be in a garage, it may be in a, a parking lot that you you know have a monthly subscription to. Um, et cetera. But making that idea of charging at home right. um, possible is, is very is very important. Pam Fletcher, nice to get some time with you. I know it's busy. Uh, Pam at the North American International Auto Show in Detroit. She's vice president of global electric vehicle programs at General Motors. GM, by the way, surprised Wall Street today by predicting steady profit this year and an earnings jump in 2019 bolstered by an overhauled fleet of crossovers and a new generation of pickups. You are listening to Bloomberg Radio. Move around. Motion creates the motion. I feel the earth move under my feet. You move like they do. I've never seen anyone move that fast. All right, people, let's move like we've got a purpose. Something's called movers and shakers. They cost a little more, but that name cracked me up. Bloomberg Markets, Movers and Shakers, with Carol Masser and Corey Johnson on Bloomberg Radio. It is time for your Movers and Shakers, winners and losers on this Tuesday afternoon. I'm Carol Masser along with Corey Johnson. S&P 500, you heard Charlie Pella talk about the reversal in the equity trade, uh, closing lower today. 156 names, though, in the S&P 500, ending higher today, 349 lower. Your number one decliner in the S&P 500 
Under Armour. Uh, that stock getting a downgrade over at uh, Macquarie, downgraded to underperform. They've got a price target uh, that they lowered to $8 from $10 a share. Shares of Under Armour down almost 12% today to $12.47 a share. Uh, what was Under Armour, uh, the analyst uh, at Macquarie, thinking? Well, uh, Lauren Vasquezco uh, citing weaker North American revenues, flat connected fitness revenues, international revenues of up 21% year-over-year gross margin pressure, uh, and uh, some higher uh, assumptions when it comes to selling and other costs. So as we know, Corey, the Under Armour story, uh, it's been a tough one, uh, certainly a bearish one, down almost 50% uh, in uh, the trade last year, but uh, another decliner today. Shares of semiconductor giant Qualcomm, those fine folks in San Diego, up 4.4% today. Uh, which is a sizable move, uh, given that the S&P 500, as, as mentioned earlier, uh, on the day, it was up uh, just 0.3.4 percent. Call it so a four and a uh, 4.4 percent increase in shares of uh, Qualcomm. Yes. After news that the European Union is close to clearing Qualcomm's buyout of NXP Semiconductor chipmaker, um, uh, looking to do that big acquisition. NXP is a special. Does a lot of things. Uh, near field communications uh, that allow them to do. Uh, uh, you know, ships inside of phones that allow them to do uh, uh, like Apple Pay and Google Wallet and things like that, uh, but also uh, will have a sizable um, business in automotive. And that's seen as a really good thing for uh, Qualcomm. So that uh, deal is, it looks like it's a little bit closer to getting done. And with the hope that that will add to, uh, in, to uh, Qualcomm revenues in their battle against Intel as the second largest semiconductor company in the world. Uh, shares of Qualcomm up 4.4% on the day. Hey, I mentioned uh, Under Armour. I just want to mention one other thing because um, Sam Poser over at Susquehanna Equity Research Analyst, he talked about uh, Under Armour with our Jonathan Farrow, and he talked about how it might need to start raising capital. Um, and I should point out Poser and his family do not own shares of the stock, but his firm owns more than a 1% stake and is a market maker in the company. Let me also mention MGM Growth Properties saying it offered to buy um, VC Properties, V-I-C-I Properties, and has so far been rebuffed in a proposed $5.9 billion that would uh, combine two of the U.S.'s biggest casino landlords. Uh, so that story was out there. Just taking a look at MGM Growth Properties, that stock, uh, that REIT, I should say, up almost 3.4% today to 29.50 a share. Shares of CVS, the mm-hmm. uh, company that sells us all kinds of stuff, stuff. Uh, out of Woonsocket, Rhode Island, that's where CVS headquarters are. Shares of CVS up 0.8% uh, again in a day when the market was down 0.4%. Uh, CVS announcing, this is interesting news, that there's no longer going to sell magazines in which the images have been photoshopped to distort the appearance of the models. Mm. Uh, furthermore, they've announced a, a, quote, CVS beauty mark, a watermark that will be used to highlight imagery that's not been materially altered for this initiative. Uh, materially altered is defined as changing or enticing, uh, uh, enhancing a person's size, shape, proportion, skin, eye color, wrinkles, or other characteristics. So uh, bad news for the airbrushers of the world. Uh, but uh, uh, that's that's their stance at CVS. Uh, very interesting that they're going to no longer. Uh, they say they're not going to sell those magazines. We'll see what that leads to uh, in terms of changes uh, over there. Um, uh, shares of Adobe Systems, which makes Photoshop down 1%. I'm not going to connect the dots there, but Adobe Systems down 1%. CVS up 0.8% of the day. I'm definitely living an airbrush-free life and very happy. No, you aren't. No one looks as good as you without lots of airbrushing. <laughs> oh, ouch. I'm looking at you right get now. Get chilly in here. All right, let's get to the Volatility Index report. Uh, VIX shooting up. Check this out, everybody. You heard Charlie talk about uh, the reversal in stocks from gains to uh, losses today. Well, the VIX shooting up more than 14 
15%, up about one and a half points. The VIX closing at 11.62 on this Tuesday. This is Bloomberg. All right, Dave, you're up. Uh, hi, uh, my name is Dave. Wilson, where are you? Wilson! Just what do you think you're doing, Dave? We're going for the price on Wilson. Open up the door, it's Dave. Who? Dave. Hey, Dave Wilson joins us, our stocks editor, and more disconcertingly, a Jacksonville Jaguars fan celebrating the AFC playoffs. What's disconcerting about that, Corey? I come by it honestly. My brother lives in Jacksonville. He's been a season ticket holder since the very first season in 1995. It's all good. Yeah, uh, uh, Blake Bortles. Hey, I could quote you five names on the defense at least that – would, would get your attention. I, so. Yeah, I never thought Blake Portals was going to get my attention, but there they are yeah, in the NFC playoffs. Right. You're, what you're, is the your, fan, you're the fan Hello? of the Hello? team that, that Colin Kaepernick played for, right? Stock of the day, Yes, perhaps? I am. Yes, yeah, I am. stock of the day. Let's talk about it. It's a Vexus, and it's the kind of name that raises the question, what's in a name? A couple of reasons for that. One is the gene therapy developer's name used to be BioLife Cell Bank, much less eye-catching. Uh, and the other is the current name, the X in a Vexus is capitalized. Here's what it's all about. AV comes from a type of virus. VE short for vector. X is the DNA helix, which has that shape. And, of course, we're talking genes, so there you go. Uh, and IS refers to Isis, the goddess of children. Put it all together. Uh, a Vexus uh, uses four of those letters in its ticker, AVXS. The company went public about two years ago, and its shares have been pretty much up, up, and away after some early hesitation. They climbed almost sixfold from their initial public offering price through Friday when they set a record. Today, Avexis said it will expand research on a proposed muscle therapy and sell as much as $400 million of stock to pay for the work. That prompted no more instant that to reiterate the equivalent of a sell rating. The firm said Avexis's shares don't reflect the potential for regulatory delays and a relatively small market for this therapy, which goes by the clinical name AVXS101. Some investors clearly were selling the stock. Avexis dropped about 10.5%, biggest one-day loss since March 2016. Dave Wilson, our stock center. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening to Coast to Coast. You can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show weekdays at 2 o'clock Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio. And follow us on Twitter. She's at Carol Masser, and I'm at Corey TV.